0: I'm the doctor, so you're the famous Sam.
1: You're listening to Pieces of Eighth, the Doctor Who podcast that leaves you with no other option if you're looking for exclusive Eighth Doctor content. (laughs) It's
0: very true. (laughs) With
1: that, it is very true. We're back as we look to explore those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord, as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman.
0: And I'm Kenny Smith, and you join us on our mission, our never-ending five-year mission. No, it's not, that's Star Trek. Uh, Our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's Exploits, whether on screen in books, novellas, full-cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, magazines, and more.
1: And take a bath. Thank you. Today it's episode 8 of our 8th Doctor Adventures novels, which were published by BBC Books in the 1990s.
0: And we've reached Option Lock by Justin Richards, a book which I loved at the time, and still do. But before we go any further, Becca, would you mind telling us what the back cover blurb has to tell us about? Option Lock, published on the 2nd of February, 1998, just a few weeks before your third birthday.
1: Six days! Six days before my third birthday! Yes, (laughs) how could you forget my birthday terrible
0: (laughs) it's true i'm so Uh sorry Mm. no you're fine
1: (laughs) Uh (laughs) in reading voice indeed landing in present-day england all appears serene as the doctor and sam emerge from the tardis into the idyllic grounds of the silver family's ancestral home only when they enter the house do they suspect things and not what they seem How far-reaching is the strange power of a secret society almost 700 years old, and how is it linked to the mysterious Station Nine? And what is the significance of a series of paintings that drove a man to suicide? From 13th century England to the former Soviet Union, from the United States to the cold wastes of space, the various strands of a complex plan come together and threaten to engulf the world in a nightmare of nuclear destruction.
0: Ooh, don't want nuclear destruction, but thank you for that, as always.
1: You're very welcome. And now it's time for our first reading from the book, which is brought to life for us by Reese Pontiff, one of our listeners in America, as we see the Doctor, Sam, and get a glimpse of their foe Silver in this novel.
2: The moon was practically full, shining down from a cloudless sky and illuminating the courtyard. Sam flinched as unwelcome half-memories crowded in on her. The water splashed into the base of the fountain, catching the moonlight and splashing silver into the night air. Somewhere in the distance, an owl hooted and a dog barked, but Sam noticed none of it. She watched Pickering, silent and aghast. He was on the far side of the fountain. His eyes were wide open but glazed and empty. He seemed not to see her standing in the doorway. The night breeze tugged at his pajamas, blowing the jacket back against his chest. And as she watched, he stepped forward, carefully, deliberately, into the fountain. Sam and Pickering both stood unmoving for almost a minute. At the end of it, Sam was nearly frozen. Pickering was drenched. He was right beneath the shower of water cascading from the gargoyle's upturned mouth. Sam watched, unable to speak, just as rooted to the spot as Pickering seemed to be. Then as she watched, he waded forward, through the pool, and stepped out on the other side. His feet slapped wetly on the flagstones as he walked back towards the house, leaving a trail of dark dampness dripping behind him in the moonlight. She thought he had seen her and was coming over to say something, to explain... But despite the fact that there was hardly room, he pushed past her and through the door. She felt the water seeping through her t-shirt as she turned to watch him, contrasting with the fleeting warmth of his wet body. She was aware that she too was now soaked to the skin all down her front as she watched him make his purposeful way across the hall. She felt the increased cold of the breeze against her sodden body as she watched Pickering start up the stairs. Then... She heard the laughter. It snapped her back to reality, and she turned to face the sound, looking up toward the source. It was coming from an open window above the courtyard. Standing framed, the light from the room shining round him so he seemed almost to glow, stood Norton Silver. He was looking down into the courtyard, not at Sam, but at the gargoyle spewing water. He was laughing so hard that Sam could almost imagine the tears running down his cheeks, and splashing into the fountain below. As she watched, he rubbed his hands together in glee, and then threw his head back and laughed all the harder. Sam watched Silver for a moment, puzzled, unsettled, and unnerved. Then she shivered, looked down at her clinging wet t-shirt, and started back inside. As she ran, a shape detached itself from the shadows at the foot of the stairs. She tried to stop to change direction, but managed neither. The shape was the doctor, and she cannoned straight into him. Strange, he said as he helped her off the floor. I wonder what's going on. Sam clapped an arm across her chest. But if she was trying to hide the fact that she was standing in front of him dressed in nothing more than a wet t-shirt, the gesture had the opposite effect. You're all wet. The doctor stepped back and looked at her. Sam looked away. He snapped his fingers and grinned. Of course, Pickering pushed past you as he came in. I'll bet he didn't notice you watching him any more than he noticed me. Or Silver, come to that. The doctor frowned, as if puzzled Sam had said nothing. Are you all right? Am I all right? She said loudly. We watch a man walk into a fountain in his pajamas, and you ask me if I'm all right. The doctor's frown deepened, as if he watched people walk into fountains every day, but spoke to girls in nightwear only on rare and unavoidable occasions. Well, are you? Sam made for the stairs with as much dignity as she could muster. Ask me later when I've woken up, she told him.
0: There we go. And next we'll hear from our friend, Steve Cole. Who was the range <laughs> editor of the BBC Books? Hi, I'm
3: Steve Cole. I was range editor for BBC Books Doctor Who list back in the late 90s.
0: Our next one is Option Lock by Justin Richards, who I'd imagine that pretty much in the word go, the pay review must have got on really well.
3: Yeah, again, Justin was um,
0: commissioned by Neuler,
3: uh, so Option Lock was, I, th- I think it was anyway. Unless maybe I did, Commissioner. I'm trying to remember. That's one that I'm not sure about. That could have, that could have been me. I remember reading the synopsis anyway and thinking this is this is going to be fun. It's going to be good. And um, it was. Uh, and when uh, Justin came down for the uh, launch we had in in June at the subterranean in Labra Grove, yes, we met there. And I thought, oh, this is a very pleasant, personable fellow clearly his knowledge of Doctor Who was encyclopedic but then you know some were most of the authors were what, what set Justin apart was the way he clearly loved using language and he just had this little factory in his mind uh, where plots and twists would present themselves and he would uh, and he would present you with a mystery a mystery that could have like slotted into all sorts of different genres or books that he was choosing to make a doctor who story out of it um, that was the feeling that i got and it, it just made me feel like it was you know he could write very well very efficiently and very quickly as i found out further down the line on the list when um, he wrote an entire eighty thousand word novel for me in just three weeks when um, another book fell through and uh that's how he ended up with millennium shock in the missing adventures range um, his sequel to system shock which Virgin had done. So yes, it was uh, it was great coming to uh, to that. I can't remember now so much about the story. I mainly remember just the bit I remember is that there's that scene in the White House, which is being invaded, I think. And originally, you know, the dangers were escalating as Sam was sort of like running for it. And eventually, she came up against a tank, as I recall. <laughs> I think I said he a tank in the White House. I'm I'm thinking it's possibly too far. Um, so I think he did take out the tank, if memory serves. But we did uh, have a chuckle about it, and again, with as with Peter, and the two of them were friends, and, uh, and I realised that yes, Justin was definitely going to be a name that I uh, I wanted back on the list, and um, I remember the cover as well. It was an opportunity to uh, commission some art from uh, Colin Howard, the uh, alien claw sort of like coming in there to uh, as if pressing the uh, the nuclear button was uh, was good. Even the title now, the title now today, I think "Option Lock" is a bit dull as a title, but then you could argue. That's true of, of many of them. It was—it uh, it must have made sense at the time. I think there was a lot of a uh, lot of kind of like placing it in dialogue within the book as well. You know, the room was locked and he was out of options. You know, Justin was, was not often playing you know games with the language in the in his Doctor Who stories. So um, yeah, that's a, it's a thumbs up uh, from me for Option Lock and uh, yeah, the beginning of uh, not only a great working relationship but a very great friendship that has endured through the years.
0: Absolutely brilliant fella i think that the story is also particularly relevant at the moment the 21st century given that we've got a nuclear missile killing system in space and given the way of the Mm. world is at the moment it's something that's it's funnily enough when i heard certain things i I did think of option lock and just thought yep this um justin thinking way ahead of his time
3: (laughs) yes well that was it i mean he always was um working
0: at ibm i mean he was
3: the man who um, you know, helped come up with the uh, the start button menu on your PC, you know, he was tasked with imagining futures for things and would do that, you know, kind of almost routinely as part of his job. So he's, he was always kind of, you know, he was very good at that. I remember when we were talking about one time, because we are a bit like Terence and Barry Letts, you know, in, as much as we, we try and meet once a month or so for, for a lunch someplace in a chat and uh, both when I was editor and then when he was editor, you know, and I remember we were talking about energy saving bulbs and the, the very slow take up of them over traditional light bulbs remember justin saying all you need to make that happen is just every time you buy a regular light bulb you have to fill in a form if you did that and made it slightly difficult or just some small barrier in the way of doing that you would get a much bigger take up on energy saving ones i think that's actually so true isn't it if you actually had to fill in a little form every time you bought something that wasn't energy efficient i'm sure there would be a, a swifter a swifter move so yes he was yeah, very clever guy.
1: Very clever guy. I, I I'm not quite sure how, how you were so confused as to whether or not he was a regular guest.
0: <laughs> he is a regular guest, I did get that wrong. He is last, definitely last a episode, regular guest. So <laughs> yeah. He definitely is, given that he's in every single episode here in the first eighteen of this season. So yeah. Oh I know,
1: but he's fantastic. So sorry we love Steve.
0: Him. We do love Steve.
1: <laughs> so Kenny, what do you recall about this book the first time you read it?
0: I fell in love with it from the word go. I've loved Justin Richards' work since he started with Virgin Books doing Theatre of War, which was very clever and literate. And I just loved his writing style and just thought, this guy knows how to tell a story very cleverly and does it so well. Structure is great. The characters are great. The use of the language is wonderful. There's, it's just wonderful and uh, Justin has written an awful lot of stuff since then and um, going on to work for Big Finish as script editor on Jago and Lightfoot coming up with amazing stories there absolutely capturing that Victorian feel written some fantastic Doctor Who novels and he would of course go on to become the range editor after Steve Cole stepped down and oversaw an incredible number of stories, writing many of them himself, Uh One of which I actually was reading on the day that my dad passed away um, back in uh, 2002 in September. So yeah, he's a great writer. I absolutely love his stuff. And every time I see his name on something, I think, yep, we're in luck.
1: He sounds fantastic.
0: He is fantastic. And joining us to talk about Option Log is Justin's son, Julian.
4: Hello, I'm Julian Richards, and I am the son of Justin Richards who wrote Option Lock. Welcome
0: back to Pieces of Eighth. Julian, it's a pleasure to see you again and to hear you. Pleasure
4: to be here. Thank you for
0: having me back. I have to say, Option Lock was one of those books. I I was a reader of the Eighth Doctor novels from the word go. I've even got the original press pack for when the BBC Book Range launched. And Option Lock was one of the was one of my first instant classics and just thinking, yep, this is how Doctor Who should be told. And it's just a, it's just a rollicking good, proper Doctor Who story. And it seems so relevant, especially today. So how did you find it when you first read it?
4: I mean, I first read it relatively late in the day in that my approach to the eighth Doctor of Adventures was an interesting one. In that I had no sense when I started reading them that they happened in any kind of order. And so I think I mentioned last time I started with The Burning, and then it's entirely possible that the second Eighth Doctor Adventure that I read was Sometime Never, which is quite a leap and quite a book to, to try and wrap your head around at that point. Um, so Option Lock, I came to um at an interesting point where I'd sort of read ahead, and I think I'd read uh, Demontage as well. And I'd also understood that Sam doesn't last as a companion and got hints that people didn't particularly find that there was much of interest to her, which seemed utterly ridiculous to me reading Option lot because she's fantastic and she's, she's great through the whole thing and carries action and understanding through and just bounces really well off the Doctor as he's written there and the rest of the supporting cast. So I'd also picked up, Bits and pieces of what Dad had been reading to write it. The research books for most of those things are still scattered around the house, and so I sort of knew what the influences were going in. And yeah, so it was it was an interesting one, and I I enjoyed it a lot, and I enjoyed it again rereading it more recently. And I can see having now actually read through the early run of the Eighth Doctor Adventures, I can see how it's growing and how things are shifting and changing, leading into where they end up. And it's quite quite nice to see. Option lock is sort of that, there's a nice short, the Doctor and Sam steady period, as it were, before Sam gets lost and then before Fitz arrives. And option lock is sort of nicely typical of, this is what Doctor Who would look like if you had to say, well, what does the Doctor and Sam look like? What's that era like? It's like, it's option lock. And I think that it's such a
0: great concept, the fact that we've got the defence programme, which has been run in secret, and you can just imagine it's so true to life, you can imagine that's something that would very much be something that the governments would do.
4: Mm, Yes, and there's a lot of interest going on there. It's interesting as well, having looked back at the original pitch and the, the changing pitches, the extent to which that sort of tracks through but grows and evolves with the research. So the the early stage versions of the story that becomes Option Lock, The Long Dark Night of the Soul, as it's initially pitched as, change a lot by the final version. But the governmental secret defense, the the politicking and the conspiracy, that's constant through the whole plan. So that's quite clearly at the center of what what dad was thinking with
0: it and then the, of course the fact that it's all revealed and exposed and uh, it's saying of course we'll make it available yeah. to the world and, uh, and yeah it's I think it's very clever just the the politics of it and it's as in the years since the book was published we've seen that um, politicians can be a rather slimy and untrustworthy lot and uh, mm. I, I really enjoyed the fact that it's having reread it again very recently it's It feels very true to life and in many ways
4: it's ahead of its time. It's interesting as well, sort of reading it not in parallel with, but with an awareness of system shock and millennium shock as sort of Dad's other take on structure and systems and the the power structures that exist with passing reference to political figures who aren't at the centre of things but who are happily manipulated to let other people be. So it's interesting to build a worldview of what is, let's be honest, uh 1990s politics and see how it fits together as a result and imagine that there would be a hell of a lot of research being done into
0: this at the time just to to build up the picture and do the world building
4: uh yeah loads and loads of stuff i mean dad is a historian by inclination and perhaps tellingly a theatre historian by training, hence Theatre of War being the starting point for this, and it was interesting doing my undergraduate degree, which was the same undergraduate degree he did, and going no, hang on, this module is just chapter 8 of Theatre of War. This is <laughs> this is directly crypt from these lectures. And then going, no, hang on, the main villain of Time of the Daleks is my personal tutor now. What's happened here?
0: I love subtle stuff. So like yeah, that. and
4: it's yeah, and it, it's also interesting seeing from the initial proposal how much the research could have gone an entirely different direction. So to, to sort of briefly sum up the, the three major changes that happened between the initial proposal that Dad sent, sent in to uh, Noella Buffini when they were first taking things in and the, the book he ended up writing... The first obvious thing is that it is pitched with no knowledge of what the Eighth Doctor range is going to look like. And in fact, from the initial draft, it's not clear that it's written for Paul McGann, not for Sylvester McCoy. It's very much a a tail end of The Virgin New Adventures. If they ask me for something, I've got this in my pocket book Um, with a Solo Doctor with no companion, who is present when the, the aliens crash or when, when the inciting event happens, and that's why they're tied back to, to later. Then the sort of second big change is that it's much more tied up in the alchemy side of things. It's not a crashed alien spaceship, it's sort of two fundamental alchemical forces that are personified by this, this ritual. And the the lighter force, the creating force, is trapped inside the Doctor, which is why the Doctor has to be present for the events of the novel after. the the ancient alchemical section. And it's all, it's all very strange in that very particular New Adventures way that's fascinating to look at. And you, you don't quite see where the journey that got Doctor Who there happened, but it makes perfect sense once you're on board with it. Um, and so the research could have turned very much towards the alchemy and the historical understanding and the digging into the, the con- concepts and ideas behind that and then sort of the third major change is one of those where you look at it and you go yeah no that's obvious there is no reason in this book why this was taken out of this book and that is that it's a werewolf story oh. and it's written so that silver and all of the the future alchemists are werewolves and they they transform and the simple, straightforward answer to this, and all the, the letters from the BBC say we're loving the werewolf stuff and we love seeing that taken things in Doctor Who, is that it ended up in the publication schedule the month after Kershaw. <laughs> which
0: uh, I, which so, is, of course, written by his good mate, Peter Angelides. Yeah, so
4: Peter <laughs> beat into it.
0: <laughs> no, I think it's. Uh... It's very vivid. It's one that's very easy to visualise. I think the fact that it's relatable settings and relatable characters that we can see. And for me, that's what really struck me first time when I read it. And again, rereading it, you can picture it. It's the attention to detail and the world building there is, is very much something that's visualizable. Visual, visual, visualizable. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's one of those
4: things where when Dad decides he's going to give you a description, he doesn't hold back with it a lot of the time. And there's a fair amount of his writing where he says, "Nope, the plot has to get, we have to get through the plot. We will stop and describe things that are vitally important, but we are going to to press on and get there. Uh, Sometime Never sort of the the example for that, where the plot is steaming ahead most of the way through, and it will pause to describe the crystal skeleton or the Council of Eight or just the wings of a butterfly, but that's not representative of the whole thing. Whereas something like Option Lock or Dreams of Empire, where it's built on the atmosphere and the understanding and that visualization, it absolutely pulls you right in and says, right, this is where we are, look around. Can you feel it? Can you breathe it? This is the place. And it's it's two different modes of writing, but it's the same general approach of what's going to serve the story best here? Is it an understanding of where we are or is it an understanding of what's going on and I think a lot of option lock has the time to let you stop and just soak in the tension in the atmosphere there's a couple of chapters where the outline for the final version which is a 5,000 word document there's like a tenth of the book in the, the final version of the outline, chapter 7 is half a paragraph long and it's just them watching the countdown to see if the nukes are going to be shot down or not and the chapter is just that tension building as we build to find out. We're like, we're only two thirds of the way through the book. There's no way this is going to happen, but, but it might. And so that I think is a, a nice clear example of no, the plot can sit back for a minute. We're going to build some atmosphere.
0: I'm just going to get a book here. and just, I'm actually going to quote something just in a wee second. Um, but in the meantime, I think that um, I particularly like the fact that he's got a great grip on this incarnation straight away from the word go. Even though he's only had what an hour of screen time, and the fact that obviously he would, you know, your dad comes to help play a huge part in defining this doctor's incarnation.
4: There's a lot in the very first pitch where he's talking about wanting to capture the tone of the the TV movie, which quite quickly becomes apparent that what he means is try to capture Paul McGann. And there's um, the the opening and closing narration in option lock the sort of opening third person seeming stuff and then future Sam at the end is a deliberate attempt to recreate the feel of it was on the planet Scarra that my old enemy the master was finally placed on trial for his crimes. And it's that feeling of, well this is what the doctor is now, this is how it works. We're going to have this slight building we're going to have the doctor sort of know things about people without explaining how, because that's something that he does. We're going to have a little more action and a little more speed and a little more Americanism. Yep. And then that that initial starting point, sort of not in Option Lock itself, but as as Dad is writing and as he becomes a range consultant, it becomes clear that what they're actually trying to capture is Paul McGann. And it's sort of that thing of the burning is, I think, where it starts to crystallise and the run after the burning is where it pulls together. And what they have to do to finally tweak how Paul McGann does it is take him apart and put him back together again in sort of the same way that I adore Paul McGann's main range stories and I adore the ears Doctor Adventures with Lucy Miller but there is something to be said for Lucy Miller into the death taking Paul McGann apart so that Dark Eyes can rebuild him as if the TV movie had never happened and let McGann build his incarnation from fresh because it does end up differently in the same way that if you take Colin Baker and tell him he doesn't have to do the Twin Dilemma anymore, he gives a very different performance of recognizably the same Doctor, but with a, a growth and a space that he doesn't have on screen. And Paul McGann, more than any other Doctor, except possibly John Hurt, has that lack of space and time that means if you just put the actor alone in the room and let him play the Doctor, he does it fascinatingly. Yeah. and the novel's range somehow gets that as well without ever having the man in a room
0: this does make you wonder what it would have been like to hear an audiobook reading of some of his his advi- of some of his books I'd have loved to have enjoyed some of those because there's some doozies in there that would have been perfect for it particularly the burning as you say as we get to work out who the doctor is but that's another story literally for another day. <laughs> I'm going to quote a wee bit to you from I Who, the Unauthorised Guide to Doctor okay. Novels, which I intrinsically disagree with an awful lot of what it says in here, but I'm going to quote you this wee bit about Option Lock. A book that deliciously alternates between the quiet, the doctor trapped in the pagan loving English countryside and the loud nuclear Armageddon is only minutes away. It's both a psychological heartstopper with the dark potency of the Audrey Hepburn movie, Wait Until Dark, and all the technological adrenaline rush of a Tom Clancy techno-thriller. Though these elements might seem contradictory, they complement each other like beer and pretzels, meaning that in terms of pacing, variety and drama, other novels could learn a lot from Option Lock. And I think that's a wonderful summing up, although beer and pretzels perhaps not a combo I would go for, but I do get the gist of it and I think it's a very fair summing up. It it brings together two very different worlds and brings them into one fantastic adventure.
4: That in many ways is what Doctor Who's for, really. It's the place where you get to say, well, okay, I'd like to do a, a Tom Clancy or perhaps, you know, a, a Jack Higgins style thriller, but let's put it in the middle of the English countryside and built it all around 14th century alchemists and, and you know, ancient aliens who crash landed and are manipulating bloodlines through history and, and just see what happens.
0: Yeah. It's very much the case. And I think it's just a wonderful mix. And for me, it's an absolute high from that first year of the BBC books.
4: Very kind of you to say. And, and I'm sure much appreciated.
0: Yeah. Well, Julian, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you for taking the time to have a wee chat and sharing been some insights. Pleasure, thank
4: you.
0: And we'll speak again very soon.
4: Thank you.
1: Thanks to Julian for taking the time to chat with us about Option Lock.
0: And there we go, we've learned something new as well. The book's working title was The Long Dark Night of the Soul. And the reviewers I who think this book is like beer and pretzels. An odd combo that somehow works. Personally, I'll just stick with salted caramel.
1: Salted caramel is great, but beer and pretzels, it's a bit like beer and nuts, isn't it? You can't really...
0: No, you can't really go wrong with it.
1: No, no. Well, we've actually got a third interview today, as this cover had a painted element, which was provided by the acclaimed Doctor Who artist, Colin Howard, And he recently took the time to have a chat with us. I mean, I say us, you know, with Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: because you keep being busy.
1: I can't help it. I'm really sorry.
0: (laughs) That's okay.
5: Hi there, my name's Colin Howard, and I was the um, sort of artist on Option Lock, uh, the Eighth Doctor novel from the BBC.
0: Fantastic. Welcome to Pieces of Eighth, Colin. May I ask, what do you recall of the casting of Paul McGann as the Doctor?
5: I absolutely loved Woodnail, and I, so I was quite happy with that. Um, I thought he was a brilliant actor with great depth and um, was just desperate to see what he was going to do with the role. And it was just such a shame it was never picked up and run with after the original TV movie. But um, no, I I really enjoyed his Doctor and um, was fortunate enough to meet him a few years ago and he's an absolutely lovely guy, which is always, brilliant as well, that, um, you know the people you look up to are as lovely as you'd hope
0: they'd be. Do you remember the first time you saw the TV movie? Did you queue up for a midnight opening, or were you waiting till it came on TV?
5: <laughs> now I've, I was sat at home to, like my sort of younger, expectant um, Doctor Who child fan self, I just sat at home with my wife watching um, this movie and sort of really quite enjoying it.
0: I love the cover for Option Lock. To be honest, I had no idea it was artwork. I just, I'd assume it's just its stunning. It's just absolutely one of those covers. You look at it and you just go, what the heck is that?
5: Yeah, it, it was quite an impactful one. And I really quite enjoyed doing it. More so because I could mess about a bit with detail as well. I was mostly asked to just supply the, uh, the claw of uh, the gargoyle which was um, reanimating with the nuclear blast behind. So I think um, Black Sheep did the nuclear blast image. And um, I then had to uh, look at that and work with color reflections on the stone of the gargoyle claw and um, decided to sort of have small pieces of it. So you've got the small cracked sections sort of leaving as it's flexing beneath the skin of the stone and uh, dropping away. And um, I added quite a few little uh, ridges and angles and callous kind of things on it so that I would have something to play with with the lighting. Yeah, rather than just a boring stone claw to just sort of um, make it a bit more alien and, um, and groovy man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really quite enjoyed that one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's that's the thing that with what you do with artwork that you could, it's never quite the same in digital. Just that teeny tiny level of detail that you can capture with a pencil. And it's mm-hmm. just it's just amazing oh. to see that up close.
5: Yeah, you say that, but a lot of my work is now digital and has been for quite a few years. For example, all the candy jar books that I did for Lethbridge Stewart, they're all painted digitally. They're not original artwork, even though they look like traditional art. Yeah. Uh, I paint that way um, digitally now so that um, I can then go in and do crazy detail on stuff uh, at massive degrees. For example, I normally paint at about 300 times resolution, zoomed right in, so that you can really go in sort of at a, almost a poor kind of uh, depth with the, uh, the realization and make it look as, um, as polished as possible. So, which, which is a dangerous thing to give a detail-free like black me.
0: <laughs> I can imagine. So what sort of brief, do you remember what you were handed for this? Was it a case of, well, handed, literally, was it get yeah. some sort of claw hand sort of thing and then it, take it from it there? Was,
5: yeah, it was simply the brief was that um, they wanted the idea of this Garboid Thor with the um, the blast behind. And so I was kind of given free reign to um, to design the, uh, the gargoyle hand stroke ball, and um, yeah, just then reflect those colors that they were going to use for the explosion. So that it sort of blended and became seamless with the digital background.
0: It's quite incredible just how things work, isn't it? I mean, you consider that's what 24, 25 years ago and how mm. things have come on since then. It's quite, oh God, yeah. quite amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as an artist, I mean, the fact that you you mentioned now that you can do so much digitally now, how does that feel physically? Because imagine that when you've got your hand, when you're touching the paper and things like that, and then to have your hand against a screen, there must be just Mm. that slight difference and just sort of the the sensation and the feel of just, I don't know, the word. what's the word I'm looking for? It's not trying to say more real or sort of make it more vivid when you're Mm. working with the physical media.
5: Yeah, it's a, a really strange thing to teach yourself. I mean... I used a, always have used, uh, Wacom on tablets, and originally it would be connected to your computer uh, via cable and you would then have a tablet. So instead of actually working directly on what you're doing, you end up essentially patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time, because you have to disconnect from how you're used to working and be looking over here at a monitor while you're working down here. So, you sort of end up looking over at the monitor all the time and sort of moving the essential uh, kind of mouse cursor that you get with the graphics pen. And wherever you put that on the tablet is uh, reflected on the screen. So, you're then sort of like working like spray painting a wall uh, without touching it almost. It's, uh, it's quite a strange thing to teach yourself to do. But um, the last tablet I got was a, a far more expensive one where you actually work on the screen which I purchased just around the start of working on Evil of the Daleks.
0: Brilliant. Fantastic, Colin. Thank you so much. That's again, okay, eh? Hey?
1: Thanks to Steve, Julian and Colin for their time today.
0: And as ever, we're going to close with another excerpt from the book for you, this time from nearer the end of the novel as the Doctor and his friends realise the danger of the situation with Silver.
2: Dun, dun, dun... Uh. So, what's Silver up to, Doctor? Tims asked. By now, I would think he has control of Station Nine. How? The Doctor looked surprised. It doesn't matter how, but that's his objective. To what end? Tims asked. Oh, that's quite simple. Silver wants Station Nine to launch its nuclear missiles at a location on Earth's surface. I imagine this farce, he gestured at the map at the far end of the room, is something to do with getting the trigger codes released. Harrison and Tims exchanged glances. I'm not sure I buy it, Harrison said at length, but let's take it as a straw man for now. That just leaves one obvious question. Two, if you ask why he's doing this at all. The obvious question I'd like answered, Sam told him, is what's a straw man? It's a proposal, Tims said. Usually one made just to get discussions going, one you expect to be knocked down. Crikey, Sam said, what a language. "'You'd prefer Latin?' the doctor asked with a slight smile. "'The question I had,' Harrison interrupted, "'is where is he going to aim the missiles?' "'Oh, that's an easy one,' the doctor tapped his foot on the floor. "'Here.' "'Here? Well, give or take half a mile.' He looked from Sam to Harrison to Tim's. His eyes had a deep intensity now as he spoke, an urgency echoed in his voice. I said you wouldn't believe me, and we don't have time to go through all the proof, but Silver aims to destroy this house together with the people he's managed to gather inside as a result of revealing the existence of Station 9, and only incidentally will he wipe out about half of Britain. The force of the explosion will release the Khmerian life essence from the people who carry it within them and from the Philosopher's Stone. The energy will be sufficient to recreate the Chimerian and revitalize their spaceship in the grounds outside. And the reason he hasn't killed us, and hasn't killed me in particular, I suspect, is that he wants our minds to be absorbed by the Chimerian at the moment of their recreation. You're right, Harrison drawled after a suitable pause. I don't believe you. He gave a short laugh. Hell, I don't even understand you. Not, Tim said, that you have a better explanation. True enough, but it's academic anyway. Station 9 will never fire its missiles, that much is certain. Oh, said Sam, what makes you so sure? Harrison rounded on her. Because those of us who have known anything at all about Station 9 also know that for each installation, including this one, that there are fail-safe cutouts that can be operated from Cheyenne Mountain. Those fail-safes will defuse the missiles and turn them into lumps of harmless metal that will, at worst, survive re-entry and crash into a field somewhere.
0: And thanks again to Rishi Pontiff for reading the text for us. And it definitely works with an American accent when there's a military element involved. I don't know why, it just does. <laughs> this all <whole> stereotypical. <laughs> I know, but it works.
1: It does indeed. Remember, if you've enjoyed this week's Pieces of Eight, or indeed like any episode we've done previously, please do leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts, because it means more people can find our episodes. And it's always appreciated.
0: It truly is. We'll be back next time with a chat about the ninth BBC books to be released, Longest Day. And we'll be talking with Mike Collier, the man whose name appears in the cover, as well as editor Steve Cole. <laughs> we'll, of course, Steve Cole's going to be there. But we're going to find out... Just who wrote this book and put some rumours to bed. So until then, I've been Kenny Smith.
1: And I've been Rebecca Chapman. <laughs> <Bye-bye>. Bye, bye. <laughs> bye.